Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. So if you could, go ahead and get your Bibles. I'd love for you to be in Exodus 34 and Exodus 3. So you're going to have to at least have two fingers in your Bible just to make sure that you're seeing them both. So we're going to be in Exodus 34 for the first part of our morning. Then we're going to jump over to Exodus 3 for a little bit of the second half, okay? So Exodus 34 and then Exodus 3. So I, I, I've already kind of mentioned this a little bit, some of these enemies, but let me expand on a little bit more. Uh, growing up, for those of you who have some strange names, like last names, I can identify with you, right? Because I've got a really strange last name, and you kind of grew up with people mispronouncing your name, right? You're kind of just used to it now. Like, actually, it's not Colvin. Like, Ethan is not Colvin. It's actually Colvin, right? But they just gave in three generations ago and said Colvin, whatever, right? So my last name is spelled B-R-O-D-D. And just so we're all on the same page, it's pronounced Brud. Can you say that? One, two, three. Brud, right? So it's actually, uh, you can rhyme it with either stud or crud, <laughs> depending on how you meet. Stutter crud, but crud is the last name. And, and I grew up with all sorts of weird pronouncements of it. It was either broad, broad, brood, and I, I haven't heard any of those here yet. I think y'all have done really well to learn my last name, and I, I find that very loving, so thank you. Not only is my last name going to be difficult, but my first name, too. Now, obviously, it's not because of the pronouncement of it. Everybody knows how to pronounce my name. Scott, it's pretty obvious. But when you have an identical twin... Not too many people get your name right, right? So I've already mentioned this fact. I've got an identical twin. Again, he's a lot cooler than me, but his name is Mark, right? And Mark uh, and I looked alike for probably the first 18 to 20 years. Now we're kind of getting our own look. He's got his own style. I've got mine. Uh, But again, he's much cooler and better looking than me. So with that, um, growing up, we were always called each other's name even by my own mom, right? She, uh, but I, I think it might be more of a mental issue than anything. <laughs> but with that, like, we would go, I remember one time we'd go over to a family gathering, right? And um, my uncles and aunts always had a little bit of a tough time trying to figure out which ones we were. So one time we go over to this family gathering, and my, uh, my Uncle Dickie walks up to me with a pen. He walks up to Mark and I, and he says, all right, which one are you? On Mark, he puts an M on his forehead in pin. And he says, so you're Scott? Yep. So then he put an S on my forehead. And for the rest of the day, he could tell which one we were. Right? Why is that important? Though? <laughs> like, why does it matter that I need to have my name right? Like, why does he need to refer to me? Well, we've talked about this a little bit. Because with a name comes a whole identity. With a name comes a history, comes a personality, right? So if, if I didn't care to know your name, what do you think that would mean? Like, how would I perceive you? How, how would you interpret that? Like, I wouldn't be very loving, would I? Like, I, I wouldn't care. Like, if my, if my uncle didn't care about learning my name, he would just be like, hey, I don't care which one you are. Just die. I, oh, I, I want to go home. I don't want to be here, Mom. That's not very nice. Right? Now, I believe a name is a doorway to a relationship. Do you agree with that? I believe that a name is a doorway to a relationship. 
And one of the biggest problems with this, with church, is that you can be sitting next to people for years, and I hear, I hear this all the time, not here, but throughout ministry, I've heard, oh, that person's come to church here for a while, I don't know their name, right? And if you're guilty of that, you know, in your heart, you're raising your hand, but in your head, in like invisible, you're like, I'm not so ashamed of this at all. I do I know everybody's name. Because you want to be known as caring, right? But is it, would it be right for me to conclude then is that if there's people in here whose names you don't know, then you probably don't have a deep relationship. Is that safe to assume? Because a name is a doorway to a relationship. So that's why I would love for us to be caring about knowing each other's names. My wife has mentioned several times, we just need to have name tags when we walk in because we've got a face mask. Primarily, I think that's selfish for us <laughs> so we can make sure we know your names. But ultimately, I think it would benefit all of us because, again, a name is a doorway. And the very same thing can be true of God. A name is a doorway to a relationship, even with God. Guys, we have spent decades in the church, centuries in the church, decades maybe in your own walk with Christ, praying the words, hallowed be your what? Name. name. We're asking God that his name would be revered and worshipped and glorified throughout all the nations. And yet many of us actually don't truly, really deeply know the name. Right? So this morning, we're, we're going to find out a little bit more about his name, about the, the, the glory that is contained in his name. And whenever we talk about the glory of God, again, we've got to come up with this definition that we've been working on. And, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just put it up here. I'm not going to quiz you guys because we did that last week, and, and I want to make sure that you're not mad at me from last week. So the glory of God is this. Let's read this together. The glory of God is... The beautiful perfections of God's sovereign character. Right? So we're going to be looking at this that's contained in the very name of God. So let's start looking at some context, right? So far in our story in Exodus 33 and 34, in the context of Israel totally rebelling against God and worshiping this golden calf that they fashioned together with their own hands. Right? In that context, Moses intercedes and he goes before the Lord and asks for forgiveness and then even gets all the way to the point where he says, all right, God, please just show me your glory. And God's response is what? Yeah. Yeah, I'll let you see this. So God allows Moses to see his glory in the end of 33. He tells us that there's a plight He's made some provision and points us ultimately to Jesus, who is the cleft in the rock. Amen? Amen. So now we get to Exodus 34, and God's giving Moses instructions. It's the same conversation, the same interaction, and God is giving Moses instructions. Because again, Israel already broke the covenant law. Moses threw down those two tablets when he saw Israel like just totally rebelling and treason against God. Right, so he throws down the two tablets, showing that mankind can't ultimately uphold the covenant, right? Already, we're five minutes into this, and we've already messed up. <laughs> we've already done done. Right? So God says, hey, I'm going to reestablish my covenant. So make two tablets and bring them up the mountain. Right? So he says, make these two tablets, bring them up in the mountain, on the mountain, 
in the morning. So it's day one, and, and, and Moses is, is asking to see God's glory, and God says, yes, but you have to wait till the morning. How many, imagine what that night would be like. Look at this. Laying on his, um, it's not, he probably didn't have, it, like a cloth, a carpet, whatever. Laying, just laying there thinking like, oh, wow, what am I going to see tomorrow? What is God going to show me tomorrow? How many of you go to bed on Saturday nights like that? Where you're just waiting, like, God, what are you going to show me tomorrow morning? I can't wait to see it. In the corporate gathering of the saints. How many of us are like, how many of us are patient enough to wait on God to show up? Because like, we want God to show up right here, right now. We say, God, we need you to do this right now. I want to see your glory right now. And he says, no, I'm going to wait. How many of us are going to be patient enough to wait for that? And so, so Moses has to wait till the next morning. He has this very unique night. I don't even know how to describe it. Very unique, one-of-a-kind night. He wakes up in the morning, gets the stones, and goes up the mountain. And this is where we're going to pick up in verse 5. The Lord came down the mountain. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, this is what God said. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. Notice how what Moses experiences is audible, and what he records is what he heard, not what he saw. Because again, sometimes we just need to hear the character of God more than we need to see God. Because this passage is literally one of the most dramatic passages in the Bible. Right? This is actually one of the most lengthy descriptions of the character of God that's ever been found in Scripture, and this ref- is referenced. Ten other times in the New, in the Old Testament alone, like this is a foundational passage for God saying, "Hey, you want to see what I'm like? This is it. This is it." So we're only going to get through five and into part of verse six this morning. Okay, so we're not getting too far; just a verse and a half. So let's let's start off looking at verse five again. He says, "The Lord came down to the mountain in a cloud, stood with Moses there, and proclaimed his name." The Lord. Guys, already, already, we already have this massive attribute declaration of who God is. Already we see this, this huge proclamation of who God is just in God coming down in a cloud and sitting with Moses on top of this mountain. Right? God descends to be with us and speak with us. Right off the bat, we get this dynamic of the character of who God is. And it's an amazing thing. It's this, that he is transcendent and imminent. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. Transcendent and imminent. Then some big words, right? 
Transcendent means that he is way far above us, almost untouchable. That he is so high above us, he is bigger than us, he is more than us, he is outside of us, he is not subject to us or to our understanding. He is transcendent and imminent, meaning he is among us. He is with us. He moves near to us and he speaks to us. He operates among us. Guys, the fact that we can biblically argue that we have a God who is both transcendent and imminent is a distinctly Christian perspective on the person of God. It is distinctly Christian. Actually, I, even, you can even argue Protestant Christian. He is both transcendent and imminent is distinctly Christian. In other, in other words, he is both an all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing God who actually happens to come and be among us. Right? So he is God above us. He is God of the universe. He is the sovereign king of glory who also sees us, who hears us, who knows us, and actually calls you by name. And he loves us. He wants to be with us. He is transcendent and imminent. You see, there are, there are plenty of monotheistic religions in the world today. Monotheistic means one God, monotheist, right? We are monotheists ultimately, but we believe in a Trinitarian God. There are plenty of monotheistic religions in the world that would have God as transcendent, but not necessarily imminent. Right? So, so he is far above us. He is undefinable by us. We don't get to define him or shape him or mold him. And so then, therefore, taking that too far, then he is a God who exists but isn't among us. In other words, Jesus could not be God. There is no spirit today, is what they would argue. They would argue that they believe that he makes no difference in the world today. They believe he exists, he's so far above us, but he just doesn't touch, he doesn't move, he doesn't work. He makes no difference in our everyday lives. He's irrelevant for today almost. He exists, but he's not really a part of us anymore, really. In other words, he has not come down. Guys, that's actually deism, right? Say the word deism with a D. Deism, right? So we are theists, meaning God is actively among us. Deism means that God exists, but he's spun the earth into existence like a top, and he just steps back and just lets it take its course. That's taking transcendence too far, to the extreme that is unbiblical. But on the other side, like if we take transcendence too far one way, we can also take eminence too far the other way, right? Too far on the other side of the pendulum are those who believe that God is imminent among us, but he is not transcendent above us, right? So these are more like the Eastern religions today, right? Um, so let me, the best way that I think I can describe this right now is, I don't know, how many of y'all have seen the movie Avatar? After, right? So it's the movie with all the blue animal, with like alien things, and, 
And I don't know, they, they do this like where, oh, everything's God. God is in everything. God's even in my little ponytail. I'm just going to plug into this tree, and now we're all God together, right? <laughs> uh, that's imminence too far gone, right? That takes God to the extreme opposite. That's imminence too far. Guys, you are not God. Your ponytail's not God. The trees are not God. God's So if you err too far on the side of eminence, where you take it to the extreme, and you forget about his transcendence, then God becomes more like your homeboy. And you likely have very little seriousness about the sin in your own heart. You, you live like you don't even care that God sees you because he just accepts you as you are. Ultimately, there's no striving for holiness while also resting in his complete grace. You use works to try to manipulate him to be favorable towards you if you can. Trying to use a currency that we ultimately know God doesn't use or accept. Guys, it's ultimately only the Christian who can say that God is both above us and among us. Amen? We're, we're, we're only in verse 5 and we're already seeing this massive display of the glory of God. This is a glimpse of God's glory. The transcendent God who no one can see and live is also imminent in the sense to stand with Moses and speak with him about himself and the safety of the cleft of God. So already that's verse 5. Let's push into verse 6 as well, where we, we, we move into God actually starting to The Lord passed in front of Moses and claimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God. We're going to pause there. As far as we're getting into verse 6, and it's already loaded. Guys, we talked a few weeks ago, and I've mentioned this a few times, that a person's name in the Bible means not just a title, but it also represents their character, it represents their mission, it represents their abilities, right? And so the God that we worship actually has his own name. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's depicted in the the word Lord in the all caps, right? So all caps, L-O-R-D, is the proper name of God in the Hebrew, Yahweh. Right? So just as my name is Scott, my wife is Caitlin, there's, uh, like, there's, we all have our own names. God's name is Yahweh, right? Can you say Yahweh? Yahweh, right? It's his own personal name. He repeats it twice. The Lord, Yahweh, he passed the front of us, and he says, Yahweh, so Yahweh. I had originally had this up here. Mm-hmm. So if we do it, Yahweh, Yahweh. I don't know how many of you know Hebrew, but that should start ringing a few little bells, maybe from your, your sword drills when you were growing up. Maybe there's an echo that you're hearing. Maybe you should start thinking about this whole burning bush thing and like taking off your shoes. Because that's the echo that we're hearing. Yahweh, Yahweh. So turn to Exodus 3. You should already be flipped there. Your finger. I hope you didn't lose, lose it. Exodus chapter 3. Because we're hearing an echo from this. Exodus 3. Let's keep this in context. 
Israel is still in slavery to Egypt. The, the pretty boy Moses, who got to grow up in Pharaoh's own household, uh, kills an Egyptian official because he was beating a Hebrew slave. Moses gets scared, skedaddles out into the wilderness and hides in fear for his own life. Ends up becoming a shepherd in Midian for his father, Jethro, because he married into the family. And while he's out in the fields shepherding this flock, an ordinary day turns into something way out of the ordinary. Incredibly extraordinary, God appears to Moses in this burning bush. The bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. It turns out God is in that fire. Can't you see the transcendent and imminent already taking place there? <laughs> like the terrifying nature of this burning fire and the invitation of comes. Right, so God calls to Moses out of this burning bush. And he tells Moses that he hears, he hears the cries of his people in, in slavery. And he's going to use Moses to set the Israelites free from slavery and lead them into promise. And all of this incredible promise from God, Moses responds, who am I that I would do this? Like, like who am I to do this? Like, I, I can't do that. I've got this problem. I've got other problems going on with me. How can I even do that, God? And God's response is, I will be with you. Transcendent, yet I will be with And then Moses protests again. He's like, all right, come on. Seriously? And this is where we start reading verse 13. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? In other words, what is the name of the God that is sending you to us? Moses asked, well, what should I tell them? What should I tell them is your name? Well, verse 14, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Whew. Okay. So if you can remember, in your Bible, a name meant more than just a title. Reference character, mission, and ability of a person. So if we dive deep into this name, I am who I am. Then we're going to find out a whole lot about the character and person who God is. Right? Logically, that does make sense. Right? So let's dive into this. God says his name is I am who I am. Say that with me. One, two, three. I am who I am. You want to learn some Hebrew? We can do that right now. Actually, we're going to do it. The Hebrew for that is Ehwe Asher Ehwe. You gotta get the guttural, you gotta get the back of your throat going and on this, right? Ehwe Asher Ehwe. You wanna say it with me? One, two, three. Ehwe Asher Ehwe. And then, right after this, he tells Moses to tell the Israelites, Ehwe has sent you. And then in verse 15, 
He, God tells Moses to tell the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has sent My throat's dry now. Sorry. Yahweh means I am. Yahweh means he is. And it's centered on the verb to be, to exist. So when God says his own name, he says, Yahweh, I am. And when God gives his name for people to say, he says, Yahweh, he is. A means I am. Yah means he. Right? Woo! We're done with Hebrew. So when he states his own name, I am who I am, the most literal form of that is I be who I be. I be who I be. Right? But let me try to break that down just a little bit more into three easy to understand characteristics about God based on this name alone. Right? Three easy to understand characteristics. First, he is self-existing. Second, he is self-defining. And third, he is unchanging. Guys, these are characteristics that we often don't sing about. They often don't make it onto the little coffee mugs that we drink our sweet nectar of life out of every morning. Right? No, because we have to be still. Oh, I can do all things. We don't often find God is unchanging and self-defining. Now we're going to put that back on the shelf, right? I'd, I'd rather go for the nice one. No. So we're going to start with this idea that God is self-existing. Say that with me. One, two, three. Self-existing. Guys, his name first implies that he had no beginning and he will have no end. Both God and human beings share one easy attribute. That attribute is that we exist, right? I exist. You, you guys exist, right? You would, you're not just figments of my imagination. You exist, right? We have the attributes of existence. God has the attribute of existence. In fact, there's this study called ontology. It's, it's, a, it's a branch of metaphysics that deals with the nature of existence, of being. That's why we're called human beings, right? If our being as humans is derivative, right? We come from other beings, right? We have a beginning, right? Raise your hand if you did not have a beginning. Thank you. Nobody's pretending to be God. That's helpful, right? God is self-existing, meaning he has always been and will never cease to be. He doesn't owe his existence to someone or something else. He says, I am because I am. I am because I am. I don't depend on anything else. Because you can actually see this picture in the burning bush. We've got some flowers here. Imagine if these flowers caught on fire and if they weren't consumed. Right? Would that fire be dependent upon the, the needs uh, or, or the nourishment from the, the, that which means consumed? No. The same way in this burning bush, right? It wasn't being consumed because God's existence isn't dependent upon the bush or its ability to provide God the nutrients that he needed. God is self-existing. It's not dependent upon us or anything in creation. And so what happens is it really becomes a silly thing for any of us as human beings to think that God's existence is dependent upon our belief in them. Isn't that just silly? Like, you, we have this 
this fantasy that they, like atheists even have this fantasy that they say, as soon as I say, well, God doesn't exist, then he actually doesn't exist. <laughs> that doesn't change the character of God. God's existence isn't contingent upon our acceptance of him. Amen? God is self-existence. He's not like us. So whenever we say, well, I don't believe God exists, that literally changes nothing. Because if he is who the Bible says he is, then you can't do anything about it. He's not like us. Our existence is totally dependent upon thousands of other factors that are way outside of our control. In fact, we had nothing to do with it. We don't have a little dial to be able to change. Right? So it, we have this pride that thinks, so we can exist by ourselves. Right? We, we can do this thing called life by ourselves. Try drinking, try not drinking water for like a few days. What do you think will happen? Yeah, you, you will cease to exist. Right? Because we need water. As simple as water is. My wife says I need to drink a lot more water. We need water. We need food, right? We need air to breathe. Guys, we need a certain level of gravity, right? The gravity level that we have right now, if we're tuned up too high, we'd be walking like little hunchbacks of Notre Dame, right? If it were too little, we'd be flying off into space. It is finely tuned for our existence, and we are dependent upon it. We are dependent upon the, the temperature of the world around us, right? We're dependent upon if it's too hot, gone. If it's too cold, we're frozen. And we are totally dependent upon factors way outside of our controls that we can't do anything about. Not God. God is totally sufficient in his existence by himself. He had no beginning. He will have no end. He doesn't need our help or anything else from the rest of his creation in order to supply him enough for him to exist. As creation is totally dependent upon him, not the other way around. That's self-existent. And we already see that in his name alone. Echweh, share echweh. I am who I am. I be who I be. In other words, I am because. And we get to this second attribute that we see about God. That he is self-defining. Say that with me. One, two, three. Self-defining. Right? So his name implies that his being or his existence is derived from his own determination to be and to be what he is. <laughs> right? I think my head just exploded a little bit. His being is derived from his own self-determination. He gets to define himself. I am who I will to be. So whatever character traits God chooses to display, that is what he is. Because he isn't shaped or defined by anything outside of himself. He gets to decide who he is, and who he is isn't subject to who we think he ought to be. So not only is God's existence not dependent upon us, but who he is isn't dependent upon us either. And yet too many of us believe we get to define who God is. Well, I don't think God would ever do that. You know, one of the most popular ones is, I don't think God would ever give me anything I can't handle. 
<laughs> I don't believe that. Right? Or, or, or some of us are saying, oh, if God loved me, he wouldn't do this. I think God should... Uh, right? Guys, these kinds of phrases are making God out to be a concept bent to our own will. It's, it's making God to be something that we can define him as instead of this objective reality that we have to wrestle with and surrender to ultimately. So Gordon Fee said this. He said, A God discovered by human wisdom will be both a projection of human fallenness and a source of human pride. And this constitutes the worship of the creature, not the creator. Anytime we try to define who God is, we are making an idol with our own hands. God will not have us worshiping idols that we've made with our own hands. God defines God. We don't define the God that we worship. So when we say, I just can't believe in a God who would, again, you need to, we, need, we need to realize that that ultimately doesn't matter. We, we don't get to define God. He, he is who he is, not who we want him to be. And guys, I think this one is probably the most dangerous in our society today because this runs countercultural to everything that we're being taught. We ourselves are being told that we can define who we are in every part of us. We are not self-defining. Like, guys, I can't just wake up one morning and say, hey, I'm going to be a 12-year-old from Scotland who's a billionaire. <laughs> do I not get to do that? I mean, I, I might get committed somewhere. Right? No, I, I, am, I, am, I am subject to so many defining factors. I don't get to be what I always want to be. I mean, and I'll be honest, even though like a 12-year-old billionaire from Scotland sounds pretty great, I don't just get to wake up and say, oh, I'm going to define myself as that way. No, I am subject to so many defining factors. And we have generations, including mine, I'm a millennial, I'm at the end of the spectrum. We have millennials and generations years who are being taught and told their whole lives, you can be whatever you want to be. You can define yourself however you want to find yourself. As we cannot be whatever we define ourselves to be. But when we tell our kids that they can, we are subtly teaching them that they are their own God. They are the master of their own faith. They get to control their own destiny and their own identity. That's, that's actually one of the things that makes social media so addicting to Is because on like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, you can control what people see about you. You can actually say, hey, look at these great parts of my life, totally neglect the terrible things. You can define yourself on social media. But guys, it's such a deadly thing to think that we can define ourselves. 
the best thing for us is to rest in this good promise that God defines who we are. And he is good. He loves you. He's got the best plan for your life. And the less you try to define yourself and find yourself in him, the better your life will be. There you will find human flourishing. So when you and I ask the questions, just like Moses asked, he said, who am I to do this? Who am I? He's asking an identity question. When we ask the same questions he does, God's response will be, it's not just simply about who you are, it's who I am because I am who I am. I will be with you. Because he is the only one who is self-defined. And finally, the third thing that we learn from God's name is that he is unchanging. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. Unchanging. In other words, so, so we've, we've tracked through so much already. Like he's self-existing, he is self-defining, and now in both of those, he is unchanging. Right? What he determines himself to be in his own existence, that he will always be forever. Right? His name is indicating the constancy of his being in contrast to like the ever-changing circumstances of his people Israel. So God is saying here, I am and will continue to be what I am and forever will be. So the, the, I think the easiest way that I can try to illustrate this for you is to change the tenses uh, from past and present and future in God's name and show you how this is uh, derived from So look at this. Start on the left and move to the middle and then to the right. I was who I was. I was who I am. I was who I will be. And then we move to the next one. I am who I was. I am who I am. And I am who I will be. And then we finally get to the third one. I will be who I was. I will be who I am. And I will be who I will be. Amen. Guys, God doesn't change. Right? His character and how he expresses himself towards us never changes based upon any of these circumstances. So one thing that we have to grasp is that God did not change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Can we, can we understand that? Can we agree with that? God did not change between the Old Testament and the New Testament, just the covenant relationship. Right? So God was not this God of wrath and anger and, and fierceness alone, void of all love and, and acceptance. And then in the New Testament, decided to become this rainbows and unicorns God who loves all and, and forgives everyone and, and ultimately accepts everyone as they are, right? Like that's, that's not the change that happened. God has always been both just and loving. God has always been both kind and severe. God has always been both transcendent and eminent among us. He never changed. God doesn't defer from who he is. So that's why like any, any kind of attempt where we try to redefine God just becomes a wasted effort because God... God doesn't change, nor does he actually need to, right? 
So can, can, can't you see, like, nothing about God needs to be fixed. Do you agree with that? There's not a single part of who God is that needs to be fixed. He doesn't have to learn any new information. He doesn't have to become more holy. When we say the beautiful perfections, he is the most excellent. There's nothing better than him. He is the best. So he can never be anything other than what he was yesterday, is today, and forever will be. But not like us, guys, right? Not like us, because we change every minute. We have these things called moods, and you can wake up a whole, with a whole new one tomorrow, can't you? Right? Now we change every day. Let me, let, me, let me try to get this off the screen, and then, and then let me ask you a question. It's, it's, there it is. Think about where you were 10 years ago compared to today. Think about 10 years ago. So that would be 2010. I was in college. What are some things that have changed about you? For me, my weight, the number of hair on my head, right? Dating status, maybe? Has it changed for you? Where you live? Maybe the color of your hair? Or maybe, maybe you were diagnosed with this massive, massive condition and you've spent the last 10 years trying to adjust your life to it just to accommodate. Maybe you've had multiple jobs. Maybe it didn't take 10 years to grow to a family of four. It took four. Or maybe, I mean, guys, some of you exploded in your families, right? You went from zero kids to four kids in seven years, right? I mean, I, 10 years ago, I had only a girlfriend. Now I've got a wife and three kids and I'm, I've pastored three different churches. That's change. As we change all the time, you and I have the capacity to change drastically over really short, short periods of time, right? We all change no matter how much we don't want to but God never changes, right? And so you know what this means about God. This is, this is I think, one of the ways that I, I want to kind of wrap this all up. You know what this means about God is that today in this very moment, the way God felt when he sent his own son to die on the cross for you and me is the same way he feels about you right now. That you are worth sending his son to the cross so that he could be in relationship with you. That the same God who uses words to speak life into existence and the joy that he felt when he was creating all of this beauty is the same way he feels right now when he speaks new life into your soul. God's affections never change. That which is in his love will never fall out of his love. 
That which he decides to show grace on will never fall out of his grace because he will not change it. In the safety of his son, Jesus Christ, God's attitude towards us doesn't change even when we totally mess up. Even when we stumble and fall and we knock our heads hard and the the weight of our sin carries consequences for people around us, God's attitude towards us doesn't change because Jesus absorbed all the wrath of God and now in Christ, we are the righteousness of God. In the safety of Jesus, God's attitude towards us doesn't change. So that means that you and I don't have to wonder if God's like in this receptive mood. Guys, God doesn't post office hours, right? There's not a time where he's gonna put up a sign and say, oh, out of office, go find somewhere else. He is always, always receptive to our misery and needs. Which means if God loves to show his glory to a murderer like Moses, and if he doesn't change, then God must love to show his glory for anyone who stands condemned by the law and yet finds grace and safety in the cleft of the rock that is Jesus Christ. God is who he is. And God will be forever who he is. This is the glorious name of our God. Do you know it? When you come into relationship with God, when you enter into those times where you're purposely entering into his presence, to find God and have him find you? Do you come under this name? Or have you fashioned your own understanding of God's name? He is Yahweh. And he will always and forever in his grace invite you in and be with you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, We believe that you are God. We believe that you are kind. We believe that you are gracious and that to tell us more about the name of God, you, Jesus, Jesus being Yahweh saves, went to the cross, conquered the grave so that we might find life forever in the name of Jesus. And God, I thank you that you are who you were, who you are, and you will ever for more be. And so God, I, I pray right now that for those of us who have sought to redefine you or even rid you of your existence, kill that kind of pride. For us who may have wanted to change you and manipulate you to bend to our wills, God, get rid of that hypocrisy.
God, would you humble us to the point where we accept you as you have defined yourself and allow us to wrestle with that and forevermore surrender to that so that we would not be found at the end of the age worshiping an idol that we fashioned with our own hands, but instead may we be found having worshiped for all of our lives, Yahweh, God is, and Jesus, Yahweh saves. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.